Volume Two, Chapter Four of Rob Roy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Rob Roy by Sir Walter Scott, Volume Two, Chapter Four. On the Rialto, every night at twelve, I take my evening's walk of meditation. There we two will meet. Venice Preserved Full of sinister augury, for which, however, I could assign no satisfactory cause, I shut myself up in my apartment at the inn, and having dismissed Andrew, after resisting his importunity to accompany him to St. Enoch's Kirk, where, he said, a soul-searching divine was to haunt forth, I set myself seriously to consider what were best to be done. St. Enoch's Kirk this i believe to be an anachronism as st enoch's church was not built at the date of the story it was founded in seventeen eighty and has since been rebuilt i never was what is properly called superstitious but i suppose that all men in situations of peculiar doubt and difficulty when they have exercised their reason to little purpose are apt in a sort of despair to abandon the reins to their imagination and be guided altogether by chance, or by those whimsical impressions which take possession of the mind, and to which we give way as if to involuntary impulses. There was something so singularly repulsive in the hard features of the Scotch traitor, that I could not resolve to put myself into his hands, without transgressing every caution which could be derived from the rules of physiognomy, while, at the same time, the warning voice— the form which flitted away like a vanishing shadow through those vaults which might be termed the valley of the shadow of death had something captivating for the imagination of a young man who you will farther please to remember was also a young poet if danger was around me as the mysterious communication intimated how could i learn its nature or the means of averting it but by meeting my unknown counsellor to whom I could see no reason for imputing any other than kind intentions. Rashly and his machinations occurred more than once to my remembrance. But so rapid had my journey been, that I could not suppose him apprised of my arrival in Glasgow, much less prepared to play off any stratagem against my person. In my temper also I was bold and confident, strong and active in person, and in some measure accustomed to the use of arms, in which the French youth of all kinds were then initiated. I did not fear any single opponent. Assassination was neither the vice of the age nor of the country. The place selected for our meeting was too public to admit any suspicion of meditated violence. In a word, I resolved to meet my mysterious counsellor on the bridge, as he had requested, and to be afterwards guided by circumstances. Let me not conceal from you, Tresham, what at the time I endeavoured to conceal from myself, the subdued yet secretly cherished hope that Diana Vernon might, by what chance I knew not, through what means I could not guess, have some connection with this strange and dubious intimation conveyed at a time and place, and in a manner so surprising. She alone, whispered this insidious thought, she alone knew of my journey. From her own account, she possessed friends and influence in Scotland. 
she had furnished me with a talisman, whose power I was to invoke when all other aid failed me. Who then but Diana Vernon possessed either means, knowledge, or inclination for averting the dangers, by which, as it seemed, my steps were surrounded? This flattering view of my very doubtful case pressed itself upon me again and again. It insinuated itself into my thoughts, though very bashfully, before the hour of dinner, it displayed its attractions more boldly during the course of my frugal meal, and became so courageously intrusive during the succeeding half-hour, aided perhaps by the flavour of a few glasses of most excellent clarets, that, with a sort of desperate attempt to escape from a delusive seduction, to which I felt the danger of yielding, I pushed my glass from me, threw aside my dinner, seized my hat, and rushed into the open air with the feeling of one who would fly from his own thoughts. Yet perhaps I yielded to the very feelings from which I seemed to fly, since my steps insensibly led me to the bridge over the Clyde, the place assigned for the rendezvous by my mysterious monitor. Although I had not partaken of my repast, until the hours of evening church service were over, in which, by the way, I complied with the religious scruples of my landlady, who hesitated to dress a hot dinner between sermons, and also with the admonition of my unknown friends, to keep my apartment till twilight. Several hours had still to pass away betwixt the time of my appointment, and that at which I reached the assigned place of meeting. The interval, as you will readily credit, was wearisome enough, and I can hardly explain to you how it passed away. Various groups of persons, all of whom, young and old, seemed impressed with a reverential feeling of the sanctity of the day, passed along the large open meadow, which lies on the northern bank of the Clyde, and serves at once as a bleaching field and pleasure-walk for the inhabitants, or paced with slow steps the long bridge which communicates with the southern district of the county. All that I remember of them was the general, yet not unpleasing, intimation of a devotional character impressed on each little party, formally assumed perhaps by some, but sincerely characterizing the greater number, which hushed the petulant gaiety of the young into a tone of more quiet, yet more interesting interchange of sentiments, and suppressed the vehement argument and protracted disputes of those of more advanced age. Notwithstanding the numbers who passed me, no general sound of the human voice was heard. Few turned again to take some minutes' voluntary exercise, to which the leisure of the evening, and the beauty of the surrounding scenery, seemed to invite them. All hurried to their homes and resting places. To one accustomed to the mode of spending Sunday evenings abroad, even among the French Calvinists, there seemed something Judaical, yet at the same time striking and affecting, in this mode of keeping the Sabbath holy. Insensibly I felt my mode of sauntering by the side of the river, and crossing successively the various persons who were passing homeward, and without tarrying or delay, must expose me to the observation at least, if not to censure. And I slunk out of the frequented path, and found a trivial occupation for my mind in marshalling my revolting walk in such a manner as should least render me obnoxious to observation. The different alleys, lined out through this extensive meadow, and which are planted with trees, like the park of St. James's in London, 
gave me facilities for carrying into effect these childish manoeuvres. As I walked down one of these avenues, I heard to my surprise the sharp and conceited voice of Andrew Fairservice, raised by a sense of self-consequence, to a pitch somewhat higher than others seemed to think consistent with the solemnity of the day. To slip behind the row of trees under which I walked was perhaps no very dignified proceeding, but it was the easiest mode of escaping his observation, and perhaps his impertinent assiduity, and still more intrusive curiosity. As he passed, I heard him communicate, to a grave-looking man, in a black coat, a slouched hat, and Geneva cloak, the following sketch of a character, which my self-love, while revolting against it as a caricature, could not, nevertheless, refuse to recognize as a likeness. Ay, ay, Mr. Hammergau, it's e'en as I tell ye. He's no altogether save void of sense neither. He has a glum in sight of what's reasonable. That is eins and away, a glisk in the mare, but he's crack-brained and cockle-headed about his nipperty-tipperty paltry nonsense. He'll glower at an odd-world barket, act snag as if it were a quiz madam in full bearing, and a naked crag, with a bum-jarring o'er it, is unto him as a garden garnished with flowering knots and choice pot-herbs. Then he would rather claver with a daft queen, they call Diana Vernon, will I wet they might call her Diana of the Ephesians, for she's little better than a heathen. Better, she's war a Roman, a mere Roman. He'll claver with her, or any other idle slut, rather than hear what might do him good all the days of his life. For you or me, Mr. Hammergau, or any other sober and sponsible person. Reason, sir, is what he cannot endure. He's all for your vanities and volubilities. And he ans tells me, per blinded creature, that the Psalms of David were excellent poetry, as if the holy psalmist thought of rattlin' rhymes in a blether, like his ain silly clinkin'-clankum things that he calls verse. Good help him! Twa lines of Davy Lindsay would ding ah he ever clerk it. While listening to this perverted account of my temper and studies, you will not be surprised if I mediated, for Mr. Fairservice the unpleasant surprise of a broken pate on the first decent opportunity. His friend only intimated his attention by, ay, ay, and ist in say and such like expressions of interest at the proper breaks in mr fairservice's harangue until at length in answer to some observation of greater length the import of which i only collected from my trusty guide's reply honest andrew answered tell him a bit o my mind quoth ye what would be fuel then but andrew he's a red wad devil man he's like giles heathertrap's old bore you need but shake a clout at him to make him turn and gore. Bide with him, you say. Troth, I cannot what for I bide with him myself. But the lad's no a bad lad after all, and he needs some careful body to look after him. He has no the right grip o' his hand. The gowd slips through it like water, man, and it's no that ill a thing to be near him when his purse is in his hand, and it's seldom out out. And then he's come a good kith and kin, my heart warms to the poor thoughtless callant, Mr. Hammergau, and then the penny fee. In the latter part of this instructive communication, Mr. Fairservice lowered his voice to a tone better beseeming the conversation in a place of public resort on a Sabbath evening, and his companion and he were soon beyond my hearing. My feelings of hasty resentment soon subsided. 
under the conviction that, as Andrew himself might have said, a hearkener always hears a bad tale of himself, and that whoever should happen to overhear their character discussed in their own servants' hall, must prepare to undergo the scalpel of some such anatomist as Mr. Fairservice. The incident was so far useful, as including the feelings to which it gave rise, it sped away a part of the time which hung so heavily on my hand. Evening had now closed, and the growing darkness gave to the broad, still, and deep expanse of the brimful river, first a hue sombre and uniform, and then a dismal and turbid appearance, partially lighted by a waning and pallid moon. The massive and ancient bridge which stretches across the Clyde was now but dimly visible, and resembled that which Mirza, in his unequalled vision, has described as traversing the valley of Baghdad. The low-browed arches, seen as imperfectly as the dusky current which they bestrode, seemed rather caverns which swallowed up the gloomy waters of the river, than apertures contrived for their passage. With the advancing night the stillness of the scene increased. There was yet a twinkling light occasionally seen to glide along by the stream, which conducted home one or two of the small parties, who, after the abstinence and religious duties of the day, had partaken of a social supper, the only meal at which the rigid Presbyterians made some advance to sociality on the Sabbath. Occasionally also the hoofs of a horse were heard, whose rider, after spending the Sunday in Glasgow, was directing his steps towards his residence in the country. These sounds and sights became gradually of more rare occurrence. At length they altogether ceased, and I was left to enjoy my solitary walk on the shores of the Clyde, in solemn silence, broken only by the tolling of the successive hours from the steeples of the churches. But as the night advanced, my impatience at the uncertainty of the situation in which I was placed increased every moment, and became nearly ungovernable. I began to question whether I had been imposed upon by the trick of a fool, the raving of a madman, or the studied machinations of a villain, and paced the little quay or pier adjoining the entrance to the bridge in a state of incredible anxiety and vexation. At length the hour of twelve o'clock swung its summons over the city from the belfry of the Metropolitan Church of St. Mungo, and was answered and vouched by all the others like dutiful diocesans. The echoes had scarcely ceased to repeat the last sound, when a human form, the first I had seen for two hours, appeared passing along the bridge from the southern shore of the river. I advanced to meet him with a feeling as if my fate depended on the result of the interview, so much had my anxiety been wound up by protracted expectation. All that I could remark of the passenger, as we advanced towards each other, was that his frame was rather beneath than above the middle size but apparently strong, thick-set, and muscular. His dress a horseman's wrapping-coat. I slackened my pace, and almost paused as I advanced in expectation that he would address me. But to my inexpressible disappointment, he passed without speaking, and I had no pretense for being the first to address one who, notwithstanding his appearance at the very hour of appointment, might nevertheless be an absolute stranger. I stopped when he had passed me, and looked after him, uncertain whether I ought not to follow him. The stranger walked on till near the northern end of the bridge, then paused, looked back, 
and turning round, again advanced towards me. I resolved that this time he should not have the apology for silence proper to apparitions, who, it is vulgarly supposed, cannot speak until they are spoken to. "'You walk late, sir,' said I, as we met a second time. "'I bide tryst,' was the reply. "'And so I think to you, Mr. Osbaldiston. "'You are then the person who requested to meet me here at this unusual hour?' "'I am,' he replied. "'Follow me, and you shall know my reasons.' "'Before following you I must know your name and purpose,' I answered. "'I am a man,' was the reply, "'and my purpose is friendly to you.' "'A man,' I repeated. "'That is a very brief description. "'It will serve for one who has no other to give,' said the stranger. "'He that is without name, without friends, without coin, without country, "'is still at least a man.' and he that has all three is no more. Yet this is still too general an account of yourself, to say the least of it, to establish your credit with a stranger. It is all I mean to give, howsoe'er. You may choose to follow me, or to remain without the information I desire to afford you. Can you not give me that information here? I demanded. You must receive it from your eyes, not from my tongue. You must follow me, or remain in ignorance of the information which I have to give you. There was something short, determined, and even stern, in the man's manner, not certainly well calculated to conciliate undoubting confidence. "'What is it you fear?' he said impatiently. "'To whom, think ye, is your life of such consequence, that they should think to bereave ye of it?' "'I fear nothing.' I replied firmly, though somewhat hastily. Walk on, I attend you. We proceeded contrary to my expectation to re-enter the town, and glided like mute spectres, side by side, up its empty and silent streets. The high and gloomy stone fronts, with the variegated ornaments and pediments of the windows, looked yet taller and more sable by the imperfect moonshine. Our walk was for some minutes in perfect silence. At length my conductor spoke. "'Are you afraid?' "'I retort your own words,' I replied. "'Wherefore should I fear?' "'Because you are with a stranger, perhaps an enemy, in a place where you have no friends and many enemies.' "'I neither fear you nor them. I am young, active, and armed.' "'I am not armed.' replied my conductor. But no matter, a willing hand never lacked weapon. You say you fear nothing, but if you knew who was by your side, perhaps you might underlie a tremor. And why should I? replied I. I again repeat, I fear naught that you can do. Naught that I can do, be it so. But do you not fear the consequences of being found with one whose very name whispered in this lonely street would make the stones themselves rise up to apprehend him, on whose head half the men in Glasgow would build their fortune as on a found treasure, had they the luck to grip him by the collar, the sound of whose apprehension were as welcome at the cross of Edinburgh as ever the news of a field stricken and won in Flanders? And who then are you? whose name should create so deep a feeling of terror. 
I replied. No enemy of yours, since I am conveying you to a place where, were I myself recognized and identified, iron to the heels and hemp to the crag would be my brief dooming. I paused and stood still on the pavement, drawing back so as to have the most perfect view of my companion which the light afforded me, and which was sufficient to guard against any sudden motion of assault. "'You have said,' I answered, "'either too much or too little, too much to induce me to confide in you as a mere stranger, since you avow yourself a person amenable to the laws of the country in which we are, and too little, unless you could show that you are unjustly subjected to their rigor.' As I ceased to speak, he made a step towards me, I drew back instinctively, and laid my hand on the hilt of my sword. "'What?' said he. "'On an unarmed man, and your friend.' "'I am yet ignorant if you are either the one or the other,' I replied. "'And to say the truth, your language and manner might well entitle me to doubt both.' "'It is manfully spoken,' replied my conductor. "'And I respect him whose hand can keep his head.' I will be frank and free with you. I am conveying you to prison. To prison? I exclaimed. By what warrant or for what offense? You shall have my life sooner than my liberty. I defy you, and I will not follow you a step farther. I do not, he said, carry you there as a prisoner. I am, he added, drawing himself hastily up, neither a messenger nor sheriff's officer. I carry you to see a prisoner, from whose lips you will learn the risk in which you presently stand. Your liberty is little risked by the visit. Mine is in some peril. But that I readily encounter on your account, for I care not for the risk, and I love a free young blood, that kens no protector but the cross of the sword. While he spoke thus we had reached the principal street, and were pausing before a large building of hewn stone garnished, as I thought I could perceive, with gratings of iron before the windows. "'Muckle,' said the stranger, whose language became more broadly national, as he assumed a tone of colloquial freedom. "'Muckle wad the provost and ballets of Glasgow, get a ha him, sitting with iron garters to his hose within their tall booth, that now stands with his legs as free as the red deers on the outside owns. And little wad it avail him.' For and if they had me there, with a stain's way to iron at every ankle, I would show them a tomb room and a lost lodger before to-morrow. But come on, what stint ye for? As he spake thus, he tapped at a low wicket, and was answered by a sharp voice, as of one awakened from a dream or reverie. Fast hat? Was that? I wad say, and fat a deal ye want at this hour at e'en. Clean again rules, clean again rules, as they call them. The protracted tone in which the last words were uttered betokened that the speaker was again composing himself to slumber. But my guide spoke in a loud whisper. Duckle, man, ha ye forgotten Hanun Gregorick? Deal a bit, deal a bit, was the ready and lively response and I heard the internal guardian of the prison gate bustle up with great alacrity. A few words were exchanged between my conductor and the turnkey in a language to which I was an absolute stranger. The bolts revolved, 
but with a caution which marked the apprehension that the noise might be overheard, and we stood within the vestibule of the prison of Glasgow, a small but strong guard-room, from which a narrow staircase led upwards, and one or two low entrances conducted to apartments on the same level with the outward gate, all secured with a jealous strength of wickets, bolts, and bars. The walls, otherwise naked, were not unsuitably garnished with iron fetters, and other uncouth implements, which might be designed for purposes still more inhuman, interspersed with partisans, guns, pistols of antique manufacture, and other weapons of defence and offence. At finding myself so unexpectedly, fortuitously, and, as it were, by stealth, introduced within one of the legal fortresses of Scotland, I could not help recollecting my adventure in Northumberland, and fretting at the strange incidents, which again, without any demerits of my own, threatened to place me in a dangerous and disagreeable collision with the laws of a country which I visited only in the capacity of a stranger. End of Volume 2 Chapter 4 Recording by Katie Riley June 2010